Hey, Megan. Hey, Reed. Why are we standing in a hotel? Well, we're not just in any hotel. We're in the lobby of the Willard. And we're in this lobby because, according to urban legend, this is where the word lobbyist was invented. Back in 1868, Ulysses S. Grant stayed here after he won the presidency. Anyone who wanted a government job or shape policy uh, started waiting for him in the lobby. And when they saw Grant come through, they'd talk his ear off. He complained to friends about those damn lobbyists, is what he called them. And now it's a $3 billion industry that wields a huge amount of influence over the way government is run. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and you're listening to The Hill's History Cast, a podcast on the history and culture of American politics. Today, we'll take a deeper look at what might be the most reviled business in America, the professional influence industry. It's an industry that evolved from humble beginnings and one that's probably caused most of the political scandals to come out of Washington. And consider this, the $3 billion that lobbyists spend every year trying to influence Congress, that's more than Congress spends on its own budget. This is my colleague, Megan Wilson. She covers lobbyists and the business of lobbying for the Hill. And while the story about Ulysses Grant grumbling about lobbyists at the Willard sounds good, it's not actually where the term comes from. Yeah, it actually predates Grant by about 200 years. All the way back in 1640, it referred to constituents who hung out near the British House of Commons. Before we get into the history, let's define some terms. By federal law, you have to register as a lobbyist. That means filing a bunch of papers with the House and Senate. If you spend more than 20% of your time trying to influence government policy. Lobbyists, among other things, spend their days meeting with members of Congress or bureaucrats and government agencies on behalf of their clients. Sheila Krumholz runs the Center for Responsive Politics, a watchdog group that keeps an eye on money and politics. They have um, a really good sense of how Washington operates, especially Congress, and how to get legislation through or stopped in Congress. And so they they do provide a real service. If you're a you know, farm implement manufacturer and you don't know the first thing about Washington or how to um, get some help, uh, either, again, promoting some legislative agenda that you have, promoting legislation or, or getting it stopped, how do you begin? Where do you go to, um, to try to shape the debate, uh, shape the the perspective and thinking in, in Congress. You go to one of these guys. You go to somebody who knows the business, knows the drill, knows how to navigate the halls of power, and knows who to talk to. The first American lobbyist we know of started twisting arms when Congress met in Philadelphia. His name was William Hull, a Revolutionary War vet who organized veterans groups to persuade the first Congress to pay former Continental Army soldiers more money. First Congress spent a lot of time talking about tariffs, the taxes paid on imports coming in from overseas. Tariffs impacted prices uh, merchants paid for things like raw materials, so those merchants had a vested interest in making sure the stuff they were importing came cheap. Those merchants, especially in New York and Boston, started sending lobbyists to Philadelphia and eventually to Washington to make sure Congress knew what they wanted. William McClay, a senator from Pennsylvania, wrote in his diary that merchants from New York were showering members with, quote, treats, dinners, attentions to delay passage of a tariff bill. Some of the earliest lobbyists were actually journalists sent by trade publications to report on what was happening in Congress. And while they were in Philadelphia, New York, and Washington, they might occasionally slip in a good word for their employers. People were, were paid to sort of cover what was going on in, in, in government for different trade publications, but also while they were down there, they also had a, had a, had, had a role of kind of shaping and talking to to what members of Congress uh, were, were thinking. That's Lee Drutman, senior fellow at New America Foundation. 
He wrote a book called The Business of America is Lobbying back in 2015. In his book, Lee talks about the early days of lobbying. And it's important to remember that Washington was a very different city back then. It was a city built on farmland without the history of any of the other big eastern seaboard cities. So once members of Congress were done with their work for the day, they didn't have a lot of other stuff to do other than hang around the boarding houses where they lived, or they could go to a big fancy dinner where they ate and drank alongside the first lobbyists. Washington, D.C. in the 1790s, it's a, you know, it's a pretty small community. Everybody knows everybody, and, and if you could be the person who sets up the salon or the, or the place where they get, get dinner or drinks or, or women or you know, whatever, whatever people were interested in at the time, uh, you can hold some influence. Early lobbyists weren't any more popular than they are today. In 1856, Walt Whitman wrote that, quote, lobbyers, as he called them, were a threat to democracy. He said they were, quote, men scarred inside from the vile disorder, gaudy outside with gold chains made from other people's money, end quote. In the years before and after the Civil War, lobbyists got a lot more brazen about handing out favors to members of Congress. When the gunmaker Samuel Colt wanted Congress to extend the patent on his famous pistol, he handed out pistols around Washington. He even gave one to the 12-year-old son of one member. Occasionally, big business interests just handed over cash or provided politicians with high-class prostitutes. And while politics was dominated by men, women started getting into the lobbying game too, especially when it came to those big fancy dinners around town. Here's how the journalist Benjamin Pearly Poor described those first female lobbyists. The most adroit lobbyists belong to the gentler sex. Every evening they receive, and in the winter their blazing wood fires are often surrounded by a distinguished circle. As midnight approaches, there is always an adjournment to the dining room where a choice supper is served. A cold game pie, broiled oysters, charmingly mixed salad, and one or two light dishes with iced champagne or burgundy at blood heat. Who can blame a congressman for leaving the bad cooking of his hotel or boarding house with the absence of all home comforts to walk into the parlor web which the cunning spider lobbyist weaves for him? Lobbying activity tends to spike when some debate in Congress has the potential to make someone a lot of money. So, after the Civil War, a lot of railroad companies started employing lobbyists to win big legislative fights. And the rules about what kinds of gifts businesses could give members of Congress were basically non-existent. This big railroad magnate, Colin Huntington, actually complained that members of Congress didn't bother hiding their interest in the free perks he would give out. Here's how he described it. Quote, When in Washington, I had to give out many passes, mostly at the request of senators and members of Congress. This giving of free passes is all wrong. End quote. Even back then, lobbyists had a bad reputation. In 1872, newspapers wrote about a scandal involving Representative Oakes Ames, who handed out company stock to fellow members of Congress in return for their votes on a railroad bill. A few years later, a guy named Sam Ward, known as the King of the Lobby, testified before Congress that his job wasn't all that different from what lawyers did in other countries. He said the business of lobbying was, quote, as precarious as fishing in the Hebrides. You get all ready, your boats go out, suddenly there comes a storm and away you are driven. I am not ashamed. I do not say I am proud, but I am not ashamed of the occupation. It is a very useful one. That period after the Civil War came to be known as the Gilded Age, an era defined by corruption, graft, and scandal. And those years gave rise to the first efforts to really regulate the industry that wielded so much influence over Washington. First bill to require lobbyists to register passed in 1876, though it only applied to one session of Congress. In 1913, President Woodrow Wilson got angry at the number of lobbyists mobilizing against a tariff bill that he favored. The Senate Judiciary Committee started its own investigation. 
But it wasn't until 1936 that the first real disclosure provisions passed as part of the Merchant Marine Bill. Two years later, Congress required anyone getting paid by a foreign government to register after pro-Nazi propaganda started flooding the United States. And in 1946, Congress passed the Federal Regulation of Lobbying Act, defining lobbyists and requiring them to file quarterly reports detailing their business. But as the federal government grew, the lobbying industry grew with it. Lee Drutman says the growth of the influence industry came in the 1970s and 80s, when businesses realized that they could use the government to further their own goals or to undercut a rival. And what happened is a lot of businesses, and they were helped along by their lobbyists, came from seeing government as something to, to be avoided to a, a, an opportunity that you could get government to help your business. No one thinks the rules governing lobbying are perfect, and especially lobbyists, and enforcement can be lax. Pretty much every time they get rewritten is in response to some big scandal. We get the modern definition of a lobbyist, that 20% threshold, from a 1995 bill signed by Bill Clinton, the Lobbying Disclosure Act, which passed after an investigation into a company that used some nefarious means to earn government contracts. Then came Jack Abramoff, maybe the most famous lobbyist in recent memory. Sheila Krumholtz watched Abramoff's rise and fall up close. Jack Abramoff was, is a colorful character. He is a former Republican political operative, uh, ran the National College Republicans for uh, years and, and also was a, a movie producer and director, but, but uh, he's best known for being a lobbyist. Abramoff was this rising star Republican who built a massive lobbying practice on K Street in the 1990s and 2000s. His resume was as varied as anyone in Washington. He coordinated with Oliver North to lobby Congress on behalf of Nicaraguan Contras. He worked with the apartheid government in South Africa. He produced the anti-communist movie Red Scorpion, starring Dolph Lundgren, and he opened fancy restaurants in downtown Washington, D.C. When Republicans took back control of Congress in 1994, Abramoff was in good position to capitalize on his relationships. He spent years cultivating members of the powerful Appropriations Committee and their staff, and he signed up a bunch of Native American tribes as clients. A few years later, the Senate Indian Affairs Committee started looking into Abramoff's business practices. They found millions of dollars in overbilling and a lot of other sketchy behavior. He played fast and loose with the rules. He was singed by uh, a few different controversies, but the one that took him down was uh, one that ensnared almost two dozen people. He went to prison, and he went to prison for more than three years. So it was a pretty uh, ignominious end to uh, a a fairly high-flying uh, character. One of those people he took with him was Bob Ney, a Republican congressman from Ohio who chaired the House Administration Committee. The Abramoff scandal led to one of the biggest overhauls of lobbying rules in the modern era, known as the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, or HALOGA, among lobbying circles. Among a lot of other things, that law restricted the kinds of gifts lobbyists could give to members of Congress. And I have had lobbyists tell me that it put the fear of God in them that there were criminal penalties now associated with breaking the rules. No more guns for 12-year-olds. All those laws requiring more disclosure gave us a better picture of who lobbies and how much corporations and interest groups are spending to influence government policy. As of 2016, there were more than 11,000 federal registered lobbyists, and that year groups spent $3.1 billion influencing lawmakers. We wanted to know what all that money is used for, so we sat down with two big-time D.C. lobbyists, Bruce Melman and David Castagnetti, to get a sense of how they do their jobs. 
Turns out it's not as sexy as what you might see on House of Cards or Veep. Here's Bruce. Lobbying is about trying to educate policymakers who have to make decisions that impact the whole country on behalf of organizations and individuals who can't spend their full time, full lives here in Washington. And here's David. You know, we're part of the sales team, I guess, is the, is the best way to kind of put it for all our clients. Okay, Megan, you follow this stuff on a daily basis. Let's dissect some of those terms. What does it mean to educate policymakers? Well, that's generally how lobbyists describe their meetings or calls with government officials. Sometimes it translates into a lobbyist telling a lawmaker how a client feels about a specific issue or how it will affect their industry. Other times, it means simply introducing a client or a company to a member of Congress. I mean, ultimately, lobbying is all about the relationships. But sometimes you have to pay to get the right relationship. Here's how Bruce Melman illustrated what he meant by educating policymakers. Walmart's a great company, it's a great employer, but it was Democrats' public enemy number one. Uh, And the core reason was they didn't tell their story. They changed not how they ran their business, but they changed how they communicated with Washington. So when they started offering $4 prescription medications, they visited with senators who previously didn't like them, but really liked what they were doing to drive down the cost of meds for seniors. When they began extraordinary sustainability initiatives, and they may be pound for pound the best sustainability driver on the planet. They visited every Democrat who cares about sustainability, which is every Democrat, and highlighted uh, how good their initiatives were for the environment. Same with hiring veterans, same with trying to bring higher quality produce to uh, poor kids in inner cities lunchboxes. And what they found is uh, good business was great politics, and explaining who they were uh, changed for the better, impressions of the company and uh, its values and what it was trying to accomplish. Bruce told us something else I thought was interesting. Lobbyists these days are spending a lot more money on things you might associate with a political campaign, like advertising on television and conducting polls. And some people who leave Congress can spend their time lobbying without actually registering as a lobbyist, so long as they keep their influence activity below that 20% threshold. The eight years of the Obama administration saw influence spending double and transparency cut in half. Uh, Some of that is because folks don't like the scarlet letter. President Obama promised to shake up Washington, in part by banning lobbyists from joining his administration and prohibiting them from having meetings at the White House. All that did was make folks avoid the, quote, scarlet L, as it's jokingly called, and start to operate under the 20% threshold that makes a person a lobbyist. The number of registered lobbyists went from more than 14,000 in 2008 to just more than 11,000 now. The influence industry doesn't shrink, it just changed. You also want to shape what do they read, what think tanks do they uh, find credible, who do they follow on Twitter, who do they follow on Facebook. Um, And the most sophisticated influence efforts these days uh, are are surround sound campaigns that really do reach into everything they see, hear, think of, meet with, uh, and, uh, and hear back home. I've been struck by the growth of lobbying that's happening outside of Washington. I wrote a story a few years ago in which I went through and calculated lobbying spending in the states. Total lobbying expenditures in California have jumped to more than half a billion dollars every two years. Lobbyists in New York spent almost half a billion dollars between 2013 and 2014. And lobbying spending more than doubled in a bunch of states like North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Ohio in the last decade. Both in Washington and in the states across the country, lobbyists are likely to come from the legislative bodies where they worked. A lot of former members of Congress and staffers leave Capitol Hill for K Street, a stretch of downtown Washington where a bunch of lobbying shops used to be. 
David Castagnetti is one of those former staffers who went to lobby. He used to work for Ed Markey, a Massachusetts Democrat who's now in the Senate. Bruce Melman came from a law firm where he worked on federal appeals cases. Money is certainly a factor in a staffer's decision to leave. Imagine the average congressional staffer who's probably making about $50,000 to $70,000 a year. Heading to K Street might mean adding an extra zero to your salary. President Trump has promised to drain the swamp, and in one of his early executive orders, he banned members of his administration from lobbying the agencies where they worked for five years. That order bans former administration officials from lobbying for foreign governments. Trump's ethics order is more lenient on lobbyists coming into the administration than Obama's was. But Trump is stricter on members of the administration who leave. The Trump order also eliminates the disclosures Obama required to make sure the government was complying with its ethics rules. And Trump didn't follow through on promises to close loopholes that allow people to lobby without actually registering as lobbyists. But that's because it requires an act of Congress. And the order did nothing to prevent some of those with close ties to Trump from cashing in right away. In the first three months Trump was president, his associates reported earning $2.2 million in lobbying fees. Thanks for listening today, and thanks to Bruce Melman, David Castagnetti, Lee Drutman, and Sheila Krumholtz from the Center for Responsive Politics. We took a lot of our history today from Drutman's book and from a speech the late Senator Robert Byrd gave on the floor of the Senate in 1987. We want to hear what you think and what you want to hear about in future podcasts. Email us at podcastatthehill.com and check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Hill Historycast. Our producers are Moral Whiteman and Lisa Rule. Megan, thanks for joining me today. I'm Reed Wilson, and you're listening to the Hills History Cast.